Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our first study in our new uh, series that I've entitled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And this, uh, this particular session I've entitled, Jesus, A Pattern for Prayer. And you'll notice that there's a question mark after pattern. We're going to be talking about the Lord's Prayer as well as some other things. And there are some people who, who believe that uh, the Lord's Prayer is simply a model uh, in other words, it's, it's a pattern we're supposed to pray in a particular way. Others say, no, the Lord's Prayer is a valid prayer for us, and we're going to address those issues uh, in, in this as well. Just by way of introduction, let me, uh, let me mention to you that uh, over the course of this series, we want to address several questions. Uh, what exactly is prayer? Is prayer just simply talking to God? Is it, uh, does it involve listening? Is it, is it more than that? And if God knows our needs, why do we even need to bother to pray? Because the Scriptures are clear that God is omniscient, so He obviously does know what we need. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Is, is that sort of uh, almost like a magical kind of phrase? And that is if we forget to say in Jesus' name at the end of our prayer, uh, when we reflect on that, do we think, well, I've just spent a lot of time uh, talking and it doesn't mean anything because I really didn't pray in Jesus' name. What exactly does that mean? We're, that's one of the things that we want to address also. Uh, and is it okay to keep on asking for something in prayer? In fact, we'll address that question specifically today because there are some Bible teachers and preachers who say that you should not pray for things more than once. And in fact, if you pray more than once, all that indicates is that uh, the first time or the previous times that you prayed, you really didn't believe God because if you did, you wouldn't be asking again. Does the Bible validate that particular point of view? And it's real clear that it does. I think most of us are familiar with the popular prayer acrostic uh, ACTS, A-C-T-S. Uh, it stands for adoration. That's where we uh, praise God for who He is. We're, we're talking about the person of God. Uh, the C is for confession where we, uh, we're confessing uh, our own sin, we're perhaps confessing the sin of our nation, because uh, there's certainly a lot of that. Uh, the T is for thanksgiving. Uh, that is what God does. We thank God for His goodness and His mercy and His acts of graciousness toward us. And then supplication. Those are our petitions. Uh, my needs, uh, our needs together, your needs. Uh, I think very often we get the cart before the horse because uh, some of us tend to just kind of throw prayer grenades where we just uh, just bombard the throne with our uh, with our with our needs and our desires and never get around to praising God for who He is or for what He's done. 
uh, for thanking Him for what He's done in our lives. Now, uh, clearly there are times when it's appropriate just to pray one of those what, what, what people call a prayer grenade. For example, if you look at the Scriptures, though, probably the longest prayer in the Bible is the prayer that Solomon prayed when they dedicated the temple. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on, and that's great. But then probably one of the shortest prayers in the Bible is one where uh, Simon Peter steps over the gunwale of the boat in onto the water and walks out toward Jesus. And uh, all of a sudden he begins to sink. And he prays one of the shortest prayers in the Bible, and it's only three words long in our English language, and it's, Lord, save me. And of course, Jesus reached out his hand and took Peter by the hand, and, and Peter was fine. So, I just mention that because uh, that, that's a good, good uh, introductory form for us to use. In fact, uh, I'll talk a little bit later perhaps about, uh, about an assignment that, uh, that might be worth doing. In fact, I think it would be very worthwhile to do in which uh, we, we just learn to uh, uh, keep a prayer journal and do it on the basis of this acrostic. Uh, look at some of the scriptures, for example, things like uh, Psalm 139 or Hebrews chapter 1. And as we look at that, uh, ask ourselves and, and jot down, what, what does the Bible say about the person of God in this passage? These are things for which I can praise God. What does this passage say to me? How, how am I convicted of my sin? How am I convicted of the sin of my church? How am I convicted of the sin of my nation as I read through these passages? And write that in my journal and, uh, and confess that to the Lord. And then uh, what do these passages say uh, that the Lord has done or is doing? And uh, the, that is the activities of God. And thank Him for that. Thank Him for His goodness and His grace and His mercy. And then, of course, uh, the supplication or the petitions. What does this Bible? What, what, do, what do these passages say that uh, that God is willing to do? What are His promises and throughout the Scripture? What does what does He say? And the Scriptures are clear. For example, uh, Hebrews chapter four tells us to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A prayer journal can be extremely helpful, and particularly if you keep it over a period of time, because you'll be, you know, people are constantly emailing or calling, or you run into them at, uh, at lunch or somewhere, and they say, you know, so-and-so's having trouble, or I'm having trouble. Would, would you please pray for me? And if you say, of course I'll be glad to pray for you. And most of the time we do. At least we do that day. And sometimes we might even remember to bring it up at Sunday school uh, a few days later. And the Sunday school class uh, prays for them. But then it sort of gets fuzzy, and if we don't see that person again for a while or hear their name mentioned, we may not even think to pray for them again. That's one of the advantages of having a prayer journal. And if you keep a prayer journal over a period of months, even years, one of the really encouraging things about it is as you flip back to the first pages of your prayer journal that you're keeping, you'll begin to see little check marks appear where God has answered those prayers affirmatively. Obviously, God has three answers to prayer. Uh, yes is one of them. No is another. God does sometimes say no, and God sometimes says not right now. So, 
And we're going to talk about all of those things as, uh, as we uh, work our way through uh, this entire series. But today, we want to talk about the prayer that uh, is known as the Lord's Prayer, which is really sort of a misnomer because Jesus never Himself prayed this prayer. And in fact, it is a prayer that Jesus would not have prayed for Himself. And of course, if you think about the prayer, you know immediately why Jesus would not have prayed this. And it's because part of the prayer is forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Well, there are a lot of people who trespassed against Jesus. But believe me, Jesus never trespassed. He was the sinless and is the sinless Son of God. So, but just so it'll uh, we'll all be clear and it won't... Uh, create any sort of uh, problems for us, rather than calling it something else other than the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, or whatever, we'll just call it what the church has called it over the centuries, and that is the Lord's Prayer. It is the prayer that our Lord gave to His disciples. And what we discover, and you'll see this as, you, uh, as we work our way through the text, is that uh, the, just as the Christmas story appears in Matthew's and Luke's Gospels, uh, also the, this Lord's Prayer, this prayer we call the Lord's Prayer, appears also in Matthew and in Luke's Gospel. However, it appears in different contexts. In the Gospel of Matthew, it appears in the, uh, in the context of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount which we know took place in Galilee, that is up in the northern country uh, where there were not only Jews, but there were many Gentiles who lived in that, uh, in that area as well. Um, and that was during the uh, major part of Jesus' public ministry was when the Sermon on the Mount took place. The other place where it appears <clears throat> excuse me, is in Luke chapter 11, and the context there is that Jesus has been praying. That was a habit of Jesus to pray. Even when people were gathered around in tremendous throngs and the disciples were saying, well, you know, where is the Lord? We, we got a lot of stuff we need to do down here. You know, Jesus would be away somewhere communing with the Father, praying. And it was in one of those situations where Jesus has been praying and uh, that the disciples somehow become keenly aware of that and they ask specifically Jesus, teach us to pray. Isn't it interesting that as believers in Christ, that dedicated followers of God, that, that intuitively we know that we should pray, but somehow we feel like we need for the Lord to teach us to pray. And I think we begin to see that in the Lord's Prayer. And then over these next uh, sessions, as we look at various prayers throughout the, uh, throughout the Old and the New Testament, I think that will become even clearer for us. So <clears throat> let's begin by looking at Matthew chapter 6. In the left-hand column of your notes, uh, there's a little passage there from Matthew chapter 5, and it it really kind of sets the stage for what Jesus is going to say in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is, again, this is the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has been talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, and He says this, He says in Matthew five twenty four, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus has introduced the whole subject of righteousness, 
And then beginning in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus talks about um, uh, contrast true piety with false piety. And he talks about three activities that the scribes and the Pharisees practiced a lot. And those, uh, those activities were almsgiving and praying and fasting. And we're, what I'd like to do is just read through the entire passage and then just come back and, uh, and, and make a few general comments. But as we're reading through it, look for things in common that Jesus is saying about those three events. Now, we're, gonna, we're not going to focus really on the, uh, on the almsgiving or the fasting that Jesus talks about because he spends most of his time talking about prayer in this situation. But let's just read through this passage in Matthew chapter 6, and then we'll come back and, uh, and, and look at a, a few things. Matthew 6, beginning at verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do, that they may be praised by others. They have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, just a few general comments. Notice, first of all, the appearance of the word when appears over and over in here. So there is an assumption there's an assumption that these people whom Jesus is addressing, there's an assumption that they will give to the needy. When you give, there's an assumption that they will pray. When you pray, it's not if you pray or if you give to the needy, but when you do so and also when you fast. So there's, uh, there's that thing that's in common. But the warning is that there's, 
if you do it openly and you do it for the purpose of gaining notoriety among people around you, then you already have your reward. And what is the reward? Well, the reward is that folks say, oh my goodness, isn't so-and-so spiritual over here? Oh, we just think he's just wonderful because he does all these things. Have you heard those prayers that he prays? He prays, you know, he prays publicly. Now, does that mean that we should never pray publicly? If, if the preacher says, brother so-and-so, I'd like for you to stand up here in the middle of the congregation on Sunday morning, and uh, and just uh, and just offer our morning prayer, is that something that Jesus is condemning? Of course not. What Jesus is condemning here is doing things publicly for the purpose of impressing people so that they'll think that you're more spiritual than you are. That's that's his whole purpose here. But Jesus gives a command, and he says there's a promise that if you do these things with the right motivation that your Father will reward you. In other words, there's a temporal reward. That's when you do things with the wrong motive and folks think, well, aren't you spiritual? And people hold you in high esteem. Jesus says, there's your reward. But then if you do things secretly, or that is what you do, you do with the motivation of not trying to be noticed by other people, but you do it simply because it needs to be done. It's the right thing to do. And it doesn't matter whether or not, it doesn't matter to you whether or not other people see you. Then the motive is, is right because we're doing it as unto the Lord. And he says, for that, the Father will reward you. Now, let's, uh, let's look specifically at, uh, at a couple of wrong types of prayer that Jesus mentioned specifically in this Matthew 6 passage. Notice, first of all, again, he, he, there's the assumption that prayer is going to occur in verse 5. And when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. Now, what is a hypocrite? Well, the, the common definition for a hypocrite is somebody who says one thing but does some, something else. And essentially, that's, uh, that's the activity of a hypocrite. But it comes from the two Greek words, hupo and kretos. Hupo means under. Uh, when, you, uh, when you translate that into English, the, the U, the upsilon and hupo becomes a Y, and it's hypo. For example, like hypodermic needle. Dermis is the skin. A hypodermic needle is a needle that goes under the skin. So the word hypo in, uh, in hypocrite, that, that, first, uh, that first part of the word means under. But then what does kretos mean? Kretos means to speak. And so literally the word hypocrite means to speak from under. And it's a word that was used... Uh, uh, for example, in uh, on the on the stage in uh, in plays and things. Remember the old Greek plays, where uh, in fact you've probably been to the theater where they had the two masks out in the uh, out in the the foyer. One of them was the mask of comedy, and the other was the mask of tragedy. The face, the the frown, and the other the the smile. Well, say for example, you've just had a you're let's say for example you're an actor and you've just had a tremendous day today. I mean, everything's just been going great, and you're just as happy as a clam at high tide, and that's great. 
but you've got a play to that you're acting in tonight and in that play you are playing the part of someone who has just had a tragic event in your life and when you step out on the stage you're holding that mask over your face that has the frown turned down now behind that mask you're a real happy person because it's been a it's been a great day but you're portraying for the audience the fact that you're a very sad person or that there's been some sort of tragedy that's taken place. You're speaking from under the mask. So a hypocrite is someone who appears to be one thing, but in actuality is something else and is seeking to hide that something else. So he says, when you pray, you must not be like hypocrites. And he goes on to talk about they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. Why? There's the motivation, that they may be seen by others. And Jesus said, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who's in secret will reward you. So the first warning that Jesus gives us about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount here, and the first wrong type of prayer to pray is the ostentatious prayer. That is the showy kind of prayer. There's a great example of that in Luke chapter 18, and I put that in your notes in the left-hand column. Jesus is speaking, and He tells this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now remember, the tax collectors were Jews who were hired by the Roman government. They were Jewish They were Jewish. Uh, men, but they were bureaucrats working for the Roman government, and so they were just, everybody hated them. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And I'll bet you anything he pointed in that direction. He said, even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. And then Jesus switches and he says, but the tax collector, standing far off, notice he, he wouldn't even come close standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice, one guy was bragging to God all the things that he had done and how lucky God was to have him on the team. And the other guy wouldn't even look up to heaven and said, Oh, God, be merciful to me because I know what I am. I know that I am a sinner. And Jesus' response to that was, I tell you, this man, and he's talking about the, the, pub, the publican, the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified. What does it mean to be justified? If you remember from our study in Romans, justification means to be declared righteous. What is it that Jesus is talking about in this whole passage in Matthew chapter 6? He's talking about righteousness. What does it mean to be in right standing uh, with God? Uh, what about this state of morality in which we find ourselves? That God requires perfection among His people. And the only perfection that we can provide because we are sinners is the perfection that God Himself gives us when He clothes us with the very righteousness of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And remember, the other, the Pharisee, was the, uh, was the big church man. He was the guy who had all his stuff together. He, he was the guy who could quote all the Bible, who knew all the verses. He said, and then Jesus said, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, Jesus said, when you pray, don't do it in a showy kind of way. But that's not the only thing that He said. Uh, notice also, He said in verse 7, and when you pray. Now again, there's the assumption that you're going to pray. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Now remember again, the Sermon on the Mount takes place in probably the latter part, uh, somewhere around the middle of Jesus' uh, public ministry, and it takes place in the area of Galilee. And a lot of agriculture is going on in the area of Galilee. It's not, it's not cosmopolitan like it was down south where Jerusalem was in Judea. And so there are a lot of uh, Gentiles up there. So the, these people were, were perfectly familiar with seeing Gentiles pray to their pagan gods. And very often they would just go off on some sort of tangent and just saying the same repetitive phrases over and over and over again. He says, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Now, so the other thing Jesus warns us about is, first of all, don't try to be showy when you pray. But then don't be repetitive either when you pray. Uh, again, in the left-hand column of your notes, there's a passage there from 1 Kings chapter 18. And it's, it's the example of the priests of Baal. Remember when they had Elijah had the contest with the priests of Baal? Uh, there at the top of Mount Carmel. And uh, essentially, the contest was, let's, let's find out who the true God of Israel is. Is it Baal or is it the Lord? And uh, all right, let's do this, Elijah said. Uh, you pick a sacrificial animal and I'll pick a sacrificial animal. We'll prepare the animals, but nobody lights the fire. You pray to your gods, I'll pray to my God, and the God that answers by fire, let him be the true God. And I mean the crowd just went berserk. This is a great idea. Well, the priests of Baal got their uh, sacrifice together, and they started in the morning, went all the way through noon until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And that's what this passage in 1 Kings 18 is. And they, the they there, the referent is to the priests of Baal, they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And as midday passed, so they started before noon, now they're going through noon, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. That's the evening evening offering, which usually took place somewhere between 3 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But there was no voice. No one answered. And no one paid attention. Why was there no answer? Well, it was because the God was not a, a, Baal was not a true God. And of course, Elijah prepared his animal. Remember, they even uh, uh, soaked, uh, just drew up water apparently from the Mediterranean because it was going. They were going through a drought at the time, and Mount Carmel was a was a. a uh, was sort of a promontory point that held that were that was right there at the at the uh, 
eastern end of the Mediterranean. So they brought water up there and they just soaked the sacrifice, soaked the wood, soaked everything. The water just ran down into a trench that had been around there. And then Elijah prayed a short prayer and I mean the fire from heaven fell and consumed everything up there and the folks fell on their faces and said, the Lord, He is God. But the point here that Jesus is making is He's saying, when you pray, don't try to be showy. And don't just be repetitive. Now, now let me say a word about being repetitive. Some people say that the reason that we shouldn't pray the Lord's Prayer verbatim is because that's just being repetitive. I mean, how many of us, and we all going to have to plead guilty on this one, how many of us on a Sunday morning, you know, we'll recite the Apostles' Creed, perhaps, and then we'll uh, and then we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together. And the whole time we're praying the Lord's Prayer, we're wondering if our favorite quarterback is going to be able to find his secondary receivers when we turn on the TV when we get home to watch that day's NFL game. We have to be real careful here. The Lord's Prayer is a great prayer to pray if we pay attention to what we're praying. But if all we're doing is just saying words, then, of course, it just becomes a repetitive kind of thing. Now, having said all of that, Jesus says, uh, and let me mention this, uh, just in the course of this, uh, verse 9 says, uh, after Jesus gives these, uh, talks about these two wrong types of prayer, in verse 9 then, He says, pray then like this, and then the Lord's Prayer follows that. Well, the like, the term like this seems to indicate that what he's about to say uh, that we call the Lord's Prayer is, is sort of a model prayer or a pattern for us to pray. And, of course, we certainly can take it that way. But if you glance down for just a minute at Luke chapter 11, notice uh, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John, and that's John the baptizer, taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say. And then he gives the Lord's Prayer. So notice, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, pray like this. Use, use this for a pattern. But then when Jesus is approached uh, in almost like a one-on-one -on -one situation with his disciples in a different, a totally different context, Jesus says, "Well, when you pray, say this." So the question is: Is this is the Lord's prayer a pattern prayer, or is it an actual prayer? And the answer is yes. It's both ways. Just be careful that if we use it as an actual prayer, that we think about what we are praying at the time. Now, did you notice as we were reading through that, uh, through the Lord's Prayer, in verse 13, uh, it says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then Jesus makes a comment on forgiveness. And you say, whoa, wait a minute, there's something missing here. The, what about the doxology part? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I, <clears throat> why didn't Jesus say that? Well, that's not, that's not in the earliest manuscripts. In fact, Bible scholars seem to think that was probably added somewhere around the 3rd century A.D. Well, does that mean that 
when we get to that, when we, on Sunday mornings, when we all pray together and we pray the Lord's Prayer, that when we uh, get to that part, that we ought to just close our mouths and fold our arms and let the folks that don't know better uh, pray the doxology while we real smart folks who do know better uh, will just be quiet. Of course, it doesn't mean that at all. The doxology is a perfectly wonderful part to pray uh, because it exalts God. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory for it. What's wrong with that? There's not a thing in the world wrong with it. It was added a little bit later, and it's okay for us to pray that. Now, having said uh, all of that, uh, let me make one other comment before we uh, turn the page on our notes because I, I put the same text on the other side just so we won't have to flip back and forth. But notice Jesus did make a comment in talking about the Lord's Prayer. He says in verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't, neither will your Father forgive you. Well, what does that mean? Well, the truth is, is that do you remember the, the do you remember the illustration of uh, in John chapter thirteen, where Jesus uh, is meeting with his disciples in the upper room, and it's for the last Passover before he's he's going to go to the cross in just a few hours, and there's apparently no servant up there serving them, washing everybody's feet. To, they would be dusty when they came in. So what does Jesus do? He takes off his outer garment. He put on a towel around his waist and got the wash basin and began to go around to the disciples washing their feet one at a time. Even Remember, he even washed Judah's feet. And he got to Simon Peter and remember what Simon Peter did? Simon Peter sort of pulled his feet back and said, Hey, hey uh-uh, that's beneath your dignity. You're not going to wash my feet. You, you don't need to be doing this kind of stuff. And Jesus said, look, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. And remember, Peter was such an extremist anyway. And he said, well, Lord, then don't just wash my feet. Give me a bath. Just wash me from one end to the other. And Jesus' response was, no, the man who has been bathed only needs to have his feet washed. And I think Probably one of the things that Jesus may be saying right here is there is from the standpoint of being forgiven for our sins, there's, there's only one way that we're forgiven for our sins, and that is through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so I believe what Jesus is saying here, he's talking about that uh, daily defilement that we have. And that we, that's the reason we have 1 John 1.9. It's the Christian's bar of soap. Uh, if we confess our sins, that believers, if we believers confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, even the things that we don't even know that we've done wrong. So that may be, that may be the answer to that. We... Uh, Another possibility is that if indeed uh, w the person who has truly been forgiven by God is going to have a forgiving spirit toward other people. I think one of the things, uh, an another passage that uh, 
that comes to mind is the is the passage from Matthew chapter 18. This this is not in your notes, but I'm sure you'll remember it. It's the story of the uh, of the two people who were uh, who were the two servants who were in debt. And one servant uh, apparently he worked for an extremely wealthy master, and he had gotten he had extorted millions of dollars from the master. And the word finally, now this is just a story Jesus is telling in Matthew 18. But the master finally gets wind of the fact that the guy's extorted all this money. So he calls him in and he says, you know, I'm going to sell you. I'm going to sell your wife. I'm going to sell your kids. I'm just going to cut my losses, get rid of you. And the guy falls on his face and he says, Lord, just give me some time and I'll pay you back. Well, obviously there's no way this guy's going to ever come up with millions of dollars to repay his master. But it says that the master felt pity for him and forgave him the entire debt. Can you imagine what a load that must have been off the guy's mind? So the forgiven servant goes out and finds one of his fellow servants who owes him essentially about three months worth of debt. Three months wages worth of debt. And he says, hey, I I want my money. And the guy says, I don't have it right now, but if you'll give me a little time, I can get it for you. Well, I'll tell you what, there's a whole lot better chance of getting three months worth than there was in getting that millions worth. But anyway, the forgiven servant said, no, your time's up. I'm, I'm selling you and your family and everything. You're going, to, you're going to debtor's prison. And that's what he did. And the word got back to the master about what the forgiven servant had done. And he called him in and he said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt and you went out and did this? He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn you over to the torturers until you repay everything you owe. Now, what was it? And, and incidentally, the last verse in Matthew 18 is the scary verse because Jesus looks at His disciples and, so, and He says, So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if you don't forgive from your heart. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that God, uh, that, that this, this man uh, didn't forgive so the master reinstated the debt? No, the debt had been forgiven. Well, what was it then that, that, that he owed? He said, I'm gonna, you're going to be tortured until you pay back what you owe. I'll tell you what he owed. He owed the same thing he had received. He had received forgiveness. And he owed forgiveness. That's the reason in both Colossians and in Ephesians it tells us that we are to forgive as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. How many of us deserve to be forgiven when Christ forgave us? None of us. What we deserve was a one-way ticket to the pit. But God in His mercy gave us grace, gave us forgiveness. And even though there are people around us who have hurt us and some have hurt us badly and wounded us terribly yet the debt that they owe us is so minuscule when you compare it to the debt that we owe God because of our sinfulness and God forgave us all that debt and he says because I've forgiven you you are to forgive others. And how many people today are tortured 
because they refuse to forgive. They hear somebody's name and their stomach, their guts just begin to roll over. They begin to play those videotapes over and over. I remember what so-and-so did to me. I could just strangle her for doing that. And we're tortured inside. The other person is not bothered at all. But we're the ones who are tortured. And the reason we're tortured is because we're withholding forgiveness. We're refusing to do for that person what God in Christ has done for us. Now let's look at some of the particulars of the Lord's Prayer. Look at page 2 of your notes. Notice as we read through this, there were six uh, petitions. Uh, it should remind us of the, of the two tables of the law. Remember then the Ten Commandments, there were two tables. On one table was four laws that were directly related to God. I'm the Lord your God. Uh, you're not to make any graven images. You're not to use my name in vain. The other table was contained six laws, and uh, it had to do with our relationship with other people. You know, don't steal, don't covet, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, those kinds of things. Well, you've got six petitions in the Lord's Prayer, and the first three relate to God Himself, addressing God, and then the last three uh, are related to the, specifically to believers' needs. So let's look at that, and we pick it up again in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, where he says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. A couple of things. Uh, notice right away that all of the all of the pronouns in there, the, all of uh, are plural. It's not I and me; it's we and us and our. So uh, the the point is is that we're in it together. We're when God saves us, we don't. He doesn't save us to be lone rangers. We're saved to be in the community of believers, and we're in it together. Second thing, notice is he says when you pray. Uh, pray like this, our Father in heaven. Now the word Father as applied to God in the Old Testament you find very infrequently. I think there are about 14 or 15 references to God as Father in the Old Testament. But in, as I recall, in none of those cases is it ever a personal kind of thing where it is as it's our Father or my Father referring to, uh, referring to God. So uh, in the Aramaic, remember, it's, it's the word Abba, which means Papa or Daddy. It's an, it's an intimate word. Uh, that is, when we pray, God is inviting us right into the throne room. Yes, He is the Holy One who is high and exalted and lifted up. But we still come into the throne room and we can crawl up in His lap because He is our Heavenly Father. Totally different. It's one of the amazing things that we become the children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And He invites us to do that. And of course, as a father, He's always going to do what's best for His children. 
Now, there are three petitions here that related to God's honor. First of all, reverencing His name. He says, hallowed be your name. I remember the old Sunday school story from many years ago when the little boy comes home from Sunday school and his dad asked him, he said, well, what did you learn in Sunday school today? He said, well, I learned what God's name is. He said, really? What is that? He said, well, his name's Harold. And he said, well, I never heard that before. And the little boy pulled out a card that had uh, had his Bible verse written on it. He says, there it is right there. Our Father in heaven, Harold be thy name. No, it's not Harold. It's hallowed. And the word hallowed means to set apart as holy. We are to reverence God's name. We're not just to throw it around arbitrarily. Uh, and, of course, the even the... the, uh, the uh, in the Ten Commandments, we, we find that uh, to be true. Secondly, we are to bow to God's rule. Your kingdom come. That is, we want God's kingdom to come to this earth. We want God's kingdom also to come into our hearts. We are new creatures through faith in Christ. But... And this new nature that God has placed within us is incapable of sin, and yet that new nature is housed in a body that is perfectly at home with sin because it's what we've been used to for many years of our lives. And so there's this constant battle. So when we're praying, uh, when we're bowing to God's rules, I want God not only to rule in the universe and to rule in this nation and to see things change here, but I want Him to change in my life as well. And then to yield to God's will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, you can bet God's will is done in heaven. And what he's talking about here is growing in our obedience to Christ. Uh, remember, in the book of Hebrews, it says that the Son learned obedience through the things that He suffered. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as He's facing the cross just hours away? And He says, Father, if there's, if there's any way, just take this cup away from Me. And then in the very next breath, what does He say? Nevertheless, not My will, but Your will be done. And that's what we should be doing. We should be yielding to God's will. And that's what this is talking about here. Now, there are three petitions that follow that that have to do... <clears throat> Excuse me. That have to do with our uh, needs as uh, as believers in Christ, and the first one has to do with the necessities of life. That is personal needs. He says, "And give us this day our daily bread." That is what we need to sustain, to be sustained. And he's he's primarily talking about physical and material provision here. What what we need, not. Ne- Give us our needs, not necessarily our greeds. Uh, you know, the Bible does say, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Well, let me tell you something. If you really do delight yourself in the Lord, the Lord will put desires in your heart as a result of delighting in Him that He will be delighted to fulfill those desires. I think of Asaph in Psalm 73 where he says, besides you, Lord, I have nothing on this. I desire nothing on this earth. I have not reached that point yet. 
And probably you haven't either. I'm not sure Asaph had either, if he's real honest. But we're to pray for necessities. Uh, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, after thanking the Philippian church for ministering to him during his ministry, the Apostle Paul said, wrote, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And then he says in the prayer, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And I guess I've, I've probably already said a lot about that. But this, uh, of course, this has to do with our maturing, uh, our willingness to forgive on a daily basis. Uh, I put a, a passage there in your notes from Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, where Paul wrote, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And ask yourself, how is it that the Lord forgave me? Was it because I deserved it? No, no, a hundred times no. It was because He was merciful and gracious. And that's what we need to be. Because if we refuse to forgive other people, we're only going to torture ourselves. But that's not the main reason to forgive. The main reason to forgive is because God tells us to. And we want to be obedient to the Lord's will. And then he says something that really uh, troubles a lot of people. Uh, the, the last uh, sentence there in the prayer, verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. It sounds as if we think, well, God may lead me into temptation, so Lord, don't lead me into temptation is what I pray. I don't believe that's what the Lord is saying here. He's talking about spiritual protection. Notice the passage from James chapter 1 there in your notes, verse 13 and following. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. So, does God tempt us to do evil? The answer is no. Never, never, ever, 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 never. He never tempts us to do evil. But each person is tempted. Okay, now we'll find out what, what, where temptation comes from. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And in fact, if you think about Psalm 23, how is it that God leads us? He leads us in paths of righteousness. God doesn't lead us into temptation. So what is it that Jesus is saying here when He says that you and I should pray, lead us not into temptation? It seems to me that, for, and I think we find the examples uh, in both the Old and the New Testament, that what Jesus is saying is when we pray, we pray, Lord, spare us from those circumstances in which we would be tempted to sin. Think about it. You, you read the first two chapters of Job. Job had no clue what was going on in his life other than he was suffering and didn't and had no 
understanding of why. But there was a contest going on between God and Satan. In fact, God was bragging on Job to Satan, saying, have you, have you seen my servant Job? He's an upright man. He's blameless. Now, that didn't mean he was sinless, but he did the right things. He was blameless. And the old devil said, well, I'll tell you what. You let me do some stuff, and he'll curse you to your face. And there was the contest right there. Now, Job didn't know what was going on. And we're going to talk about this a lot next week in our next session when we, when we look at uh, some of the prayers of Job. But the truth is, is that God didn't lead Job into temptation. But the circumstances that came into Job's life eventuated in his being tempted to sin. And Job did sin with some of the things ultimately that, that he had to say. You see the same thing with, uh, with Simon Peter. Uh, remember, uh, Jesus announced to the disciples, uh, one of you tonight's going to betray me. Is it I? Is it I? Who, who is it? Who is it? And Simon Peter, you know, he, when he opened his mouth, it was usually to swap feet, and this was not an exception. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, it certainly won't be me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there with you. And the Lord said, before the night's over, you're going to deny me three times. There's no way that that's going to happen. And Peter was just sure of himself. But then the circumstances came. Now, did God tempt Peter to deny the Lord? Not at all. But the circumstances came along so that the, Peter's nature was exposed to these circumstances and all of a sudden the temptation was there. And he said, no, I don't know who he is. And even cursed when he said it on one occasion. So I think when Jesus says that we're to pray, lead us not into temptation, He's saying, Lord, lead us in such a way that we are spared from those kinds of circumstances in which we would be tempted to sin against You. And He says, and deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one, because the evil one is always involved in, uh, in, in those temptations. Now, I think we've already discussed the, the prayer itself in Luke chapter 11, but there is one other thing that I want us to look at in Luke chapter 11, and, uh, and that's beginning at verse 5. <clears throat> uh, in the context of Luke chapter 11, this is where the disciples come to Jesus and say, Look, John the baptizer taught his disciples how to pray. We want you to teach us to pray too. And Jesus said, Okay, and he, he proceeds to Say, uh, tell them about the Lord's Prayer. And then he follows it up with a parable as well as a punchline. Verse 5, and, now this is after telling them what to pray. Verse 5, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three lobes for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Don't bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, that is, because of his shameless, bold persistence, because of his shameless, bold persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, notice the illustration that Jesus is using in this parable. Says, now remember, in those days, they, didn't, they generally didn't have 
especially in this area, they didn't have separate bedrooms for the kids. They just had one big sleeping room, and the kids were all on pallets, you know, on the floor asleep, and Dad was right there in the middle of them, and this guy comes beating on the door. Hey, a friend of mine's just come up, and I've looked, and the fridge is empty, and the pantry's empty. This guy says he's starving to death. I've got to have something. Come on. And the guy answers with and said, Look, I am not going to get up and get you anything. And those of us who have children or who have had small children, we know once they get asleep, you don't want to do anything to wake up the children. You want them to go on and sleep through the night. But Jesus says because of the, the neighbor's uh, boldness, he kept on knocking and insisting. He said, the guy finally gave up, got up, and got it, gave him what he needed. Now, what is God saying? What is Jesus saying here? Is he saying God is like a an angry, sleepy man, and if you just keep beating on the door, he'll finally say, "All right, all right." If you just shut up, I'll give it to you. Of course not. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying if the sleepy, grumpy neighbor would get up and give something, how much more would your heavenly Father who loves you? give you. Now you say, well, where do you get that? Well, all you got to do is keep reading. Jesus starts uh, on his explanation, verse 9 of the parable, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, let me tell you this. Those verbs, ask, knock, and seek, are verbs that, <clears throat> that are a, they're known as present imperative tense verbs. Literally, that means ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. Seek and keep on seeking. Stay at it. Be persistent. Be bold is the point that he's making. For everyone who asks and keeps on asking receives. And the one who seeks and keeps on seeking finds. And to the one who knocks and keeps on knocking, it will be opened. Say, well, yeah, but you're going to tick God off if you do that, and He's going to, He's going to give you some kind of weird something, and He's going to, going to, whack you, like like the sister would with a ruler across the knuckles for being that way. Not at all. You need to keep reading, verse eleven. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Now remember, fish and eggs were real common uh, dietary fare in that day. He says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Notice, again, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. How much more will the Heavenly Father... Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. And of course, the Holy Spirit came in power at Pentecost and has remained with us to this day. And when a person comes to Christ, one of the things that God does is He seals that person with the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling that believer so that within us, God resides within us. Oh! What a powerful thing. Well, I see we're close to our time being up. Look at the conclusion with me uh, and the final applications for just a minute. We'll just kind of go through them rather quickly, and I'll let you give them a little more thought. 
While it's absolutely true that the sovereign of the universe, that is our creator and sustainer, will accomplish his will and fulfill all his purposes, he also has ordained the means to attaining those ends. And among those means that God is pleased to use are the prayers of his people. For example, when God's going to save somebody, how does he do it? He does it through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is preached and the Spirit of God works and uh, convicts of sin, draws that person to himself, grants him faith and repentance. Uh, the person cries out, Oh Lord, have mercy on me. And what does God do? Just that. He has mercy on him. He saves him. Uh, there's a verse just below that from Ezekiel chapter 36. Uh, this is from the King James Version. And the context is that the, the nation of Judah has been taken into Babylonian exile. And they would be in that exile for 70 years. And then they would be brought back to the land. Well, God announced that on several occasions in the Old Testament. But in this particular occasion here through Ezekiel, God says, yeah, you're going into exile, but I am going to bring you back. But there's something you're going to have to do before I bring you back. Notice what it says. Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, that I, the Lord, build the ruined places. That is, when I bring you back, then all these heathen who are gathered around in this area, they're going to know that the Lord is in this, that the true God, that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and, blant, and plant that that was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. That, I'm going to do it. But don't stop reading there. Thus says the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I'm going to do it, but you're going to have to ask me to do it. The gospel is the means to salvation. The prayers of God's people are often the means that God uses to accomplish His purposes. God's will is going to be done. But very often God says, you're going to have to wait until the right time and during that time you're going to pray and your persistence in prayer is, is not going to change me at all, God says. But what's going to happen is it's going to make some changes in you. It's going to prepare you for what's coming. It's going to prepare you to be grateful when it does come. Notice, though filled with the Holy Spirit before his birth and later widely known as a prophet and a martyr, John the baptizer also was remembered as a man of prayer. The disciples of Jesus, I mean, they, they personally observed, even participated in the preaching and the miracle working ministry. Asked them, they, they, they asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And the sinless Son of God Himself felt the necessity of regular times of prayer to His Father. How great then is our need to pray and to pray in a way that honors God. Prayer is a fourfold activity performed by God's people in God's presence with God's help. As we've seen, the Lord's Prayer demonstrates three of those elements, adoration and confession and petition. But uh, if you're looking for thanksgiving, if you look uh, throughout the Bible in other prayers, you'll find thanksgiving there, particularly in the Psalms. And to pray in Jesus' name, and we're going to see this more so as we work our way through this series, to pray in Jesus' name is to acknowledge that our access to God is provided only through the mediatorial work 
of Jesus. When we pray in Jesus' name, what we are saying is, Lord, what I'm asking you for is consistent with the character of Jesus and it's consistent with what I believe His will is. And finally, the prayers of believers in Christ should be characterized by fervent persistence. God always answers His children's prayers. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, sometimes wait. But when God does deny our request or when God puts us off, it's because He has something better for us. Now, at the time, it won't seem to us like it's any better. And then remember that the indwelling Holy Spirit, the one God promised He would give and who takes up residence within us when He saves us, the indwelling Holy Spirit always helps us when we pray. And there's that wonderful passage from Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. May God help us to be prayer warriors and to seek to pray in such a way that it will bring honor and glory to His name above all things. Praise be to God. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.